to another episode here on the Sean's Take Podcast. The first episode of this podcast aired just over a year ago, March 8th, 2022, and today you are now listening to the 55th episode of our podcast. And today, guys, I've got something special coming for you. I have three guests joining me today to discuss the connection between music and sports. This subject is one I've had an idea about for a long time, and today we're finally getting it done. So, Two of these guests, you guys will remember if you listened to our very first episode a year ago, and that's Malcolm Ashley, Class A 81, here from Yale, Dunn Pearson Jr., a member of the OJs, and our very own executive producer of the Sean's Take podcast, and now our newest guest of the show, a friend of mine here at Yale, a very talented singer, songwriter, and performer, Alaman Jaju. Guys, welcome. It's a pleasure. All right. Thank you. All right. We're going to have a great discussion here today, so... Before we get into our subject, I want a little bit more of a bio. So, Malcolm, if you'll start us off, quick little introduction. I was fortunate to play uh, lacrosse and a row crew at Yale, and uh, that led me to end my music career. I was a classical trumpet player when I came to Yale, but couldn't stomach being in the Yale band. Mm. Um, have been very fortunate to see the impact of music as an economist and systems engineer in some of my work of building communities. There is always that element of how do people socialize, what motivates people. So I remember hearing about Michigan because of the Michigan fight song as a wee lad long before I saw him on TV. So sports and music go hand in hand. It's a pleasure to be here. Everyone done? <laughs> sports and music today. I'm so happy to be here. Um, as you said, I'm one of the original members in the OJ's orchestra. All the way back to when, it, back when we weren't going to talk about the dates then. <laughs> but uh, my career has moved on. I'm an, actually an arranger, actually, right for orchestra orchestrations. And in this particular thing here, I've done a lot of sports commercials uh, from McDonald's and Wendy's. And when we, we talk about it, I'll talk about my connection into sports. I actually, um, <laughs> which is going to be a topic of fun. I actually wrote the theme song for the USFL, which was handled by uh, okay. ex-President Trump. Back in the day. <laughs> uh, so, you know, so I got a little mileage on this, but sports and music it is always correlated. I mean, all of our shows that, you know, the halftime shows, all of that. So we'll, we'll talk about it. Take me out to the ball. But game. what I'm most proud of is that this is our 55th <laughs> yes. episode of Sean's Take, and I'm, I'm, I am so honored to be a executive producer. And then our, our newest guest of the show, Alman, you're at Yale. You've 
already off to a great career. Tell people a little bit about what, what it is you're doing. Will do. Um, I just want to say thank you for having me. Of course. And I feel Thanks so honored to be able to, to speak alongside you and two esteemed, accomplished, amazing men right here. Um, about myself, right, I'm here at Yale. I'm a senior, um, Benjamin Franklin College. I major in comparative literature, which always makes people quite confused because <laughs> when I'm not in the classroom, I'm, I'm very constantly performing, you know, singing, dancing and whatnot. And um, yeah, I, I was so excited to, to talk about the intersection between sports and music because my introduction to the arts was through dance. Uh, I trained in the Debbie Allen Dance Academy for 15 plus years, starting at the young age of five. And so there's always been a relationship between um, the body training um, and the arts. And then, uh, yeah, coming here here to Yale, uh, this is the first time I've really been around like super, super serious athletes. I mean, I had a few friends that went on to play college sports, but you're really put into the mix of so many people achieving so highly um, in athletics, also in the arts. And so um, it's a real honor for me as somebody who respects so much of what you do um, and, and what athletes do and I'm inspired in my art uh, by athletes. I mean, one of the most inspirational people in my life is is Kobe Bryant, and I have a story yeah. about that a bit later. That's basically me, you know, I'm, I'm committed in the same way as, as anybody who wants to be the best um, at their sport, the best at their craft, that's that's the mindset that I bring to live performance, uh, music, and storytelling. Let me put on my part for story like that. Yeah. What's the most important sound or song that defined the issue of race in American sports. I'll give you a hint. Okay. Um, they were a traveling group. <laughs> they were a traveling group. This is this is this is a song or sound? Can I have a, can I can I have a deep all of that? It, it was a, it was a song. It was a sound, and it was a group uh, that defined American sports. That helped with integration in America. I'll give you. The, okay. Okay. This so it has to do with sports integration yes. and Ooh. music. Yeah. The Harlem Globetrotters. Okay. All right. And I think that's a good entry point okay. in terms of what we want to discuss in terms of music. Every empire has its games. Right. And for us to be part of those games, we've had to become part of the landscape. Mm -hmm. We saw that with the Harlem Globetrotters. It's the first time that you saw all black players mm -hmm. delving deep into the South. Mm -hmm. But then when you start thinking also about other theme songs that people have, you know, again with Michigan, again with UCLA from the West Coast where you are, uh -huh. uh, sounds define a certain mindset. Having gone to both Yale and Georgia Tech, Bulldog, Bulldog, Bow, Wow, Wow, Eli, yeah. There we go. There we go. And of course, the rambling wreck of Georgia Tech, because <laughs> it's a heck of a hell of an engineer. That puts the mind frame, and it, and it, and it frames the, the question of why is the music so important? Why do you think as a young man, as an, as a, an arranger, why is music that important now? With sports, with motivating, why is it Absolutely. Important? I mean, I think um, at least the, the themes that come up in terms of what you're talking about right now, and especially with the Harlem Globetrotters, right? They represent to me a sort of synthesis of the entertainment that we derive from watching an excellent live performer or watching an excellent basketball game, right? It's a show. Um, 
But in terms of what, what music means, I feel like to me as an arranger and as somebody who understands the relationship between the sonic and the visual um, representation of entertainment, um, music is able to concretize and, and, and put before an audience feelings, emotions, narrative that can't otherwise be produced just through words. Um, that's, that's, that's it for me at least. And so I feel like in that sense, when we watch a basketball game, right? Like when I'm, you know, nine years old and I'm watching Kobe Bryant, uh, uh, down 3-2 against the Celtics and I see people in my city yelling at people for having green grass on their lawns, <laughs> right? This, this is a true story. I'm, I'm at the DMV with my mom. She's wearing a recycling shirt. Three men are like, take that off. You know what I mean? Like, what are you doing? Don't you, don't you love this? It's, it's, it's not necessarily logical and it doesn't follow any, any sort of um, train of thought that we can put into words, but it has to do with feeling. Um, and so in that sense, I feel like that's a very solid nexus um, for the things that we're talking about right now. Music and sports are an emotional outlet, um, a cultural and, and community-based outlet, and, and um, they give our spirits an interface that, that the way in which we normally communicate, which is through conversation and words, might come short. Well, and you know, when I thought of first doing an episode like this, I think when you say music and sports to a lot of people, mm -hmm. they think very surface level. As you've already heard from the beginning of our discussion right here, there's a lot of history, there's a lot of culture, there's a lot of passion, emotion, as you guys have mentioned, between the two as individuals and between the two when you join them together. So one of the first subjects I wanted to talk about and done, this is going into conversations that we've had a lot at the end of the day, there's a lot of things that relate back to business. Mm. And one of the subjects I wanted to talk about was the Super Bowl halftime show. And Alman, you just mentioned putting on a show. Yeah. Hard to think of a bigger show with music and sports than the Super Bowl halftime show. We just saw Rihanna kill it this past Super Bowl, get a lot of headlines. And wanted to get into this subject of, as a performer, what does this type of stage mean to you? a Super Bowl halftime show type of element. And I think, um, you know, as someone who aspires to be recognized as, as at the pinnacle of, uh, of live performers, right? I think that's one of the greatest honors and the greatest challenges, right? Like, how do you entertain a football stadium full of people, but then also reach through the television and out to the world and entertain hundreds of millions of folks, right? And do a good job for those who are your fan and like your music and those who may not have ever seen you. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, in my mind, anytime I'm getting on a stage, no matter how big or how small, I want to leave no one with the impression that I could have done more or that, oh, maybe somebody might've been better to be like, you know, do that. And that, that lies within like, you know, the competitiveness and the mindset that goes into all of these things. But um, to take it out of the personal, I think also um, in terms of what the Super Bowl halftime show means to music, means to a game like football that's, you know, so co-constituted with the politics of Americanness. I think the Super Bowl halftime show is such a wonderful opportunity to remind everybody um, just how important the arts are. You know, I think it's so odd that in this in this time and age where you know you bring up DeSantis right prior to when we started recording, but um, there's a real assault on education, on expression, 
Um, and I think that for black people, the arts being such an mm-hmm. important medium, right? Like it's, it's a megastar like Rihanna is exactly what we need to remind everybody that, you know, artistic expression is just as American as a football game and should be protected and valued in the same way. And that's why it's so yeah. crazy to me to yeah. see mo- like the, the viewership for the Super Bowl go so much higher up when Rihanna is on the screen. And then as soon as she leaves, it goes back down. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the NFL doesn't like that so much or Fox or whoever's there in the show. Those are some of my initial reactions to that Super Bowl show. I'm going to speak about it first um, yeah. from a, a pure creative sense of it. The creative sense of it is is that the, the music now in the Super Bowls in specific now reflect the the culture of the audience mm-hmm. as well as the players. Mm-hmm. For the first time, um, as the players have changed over the years, um, speaking of Rihanna, nothing else. They can actually dance. They can actually show themselves in a different light. And not just playing football, it just sort of reminds them that they are also human beings. Mm-hmm. And many of them are young human beings. See, and this is what they like. So it gives them an opportunity to to connect the halftime. The halftime um, show was also evolved into, first of all, it fills a void. Let's just talk about the business side of it. It fills the void to continue the watching, the eyeballs. Okay. So uh, over the years, the halftime show, you know, people would, would use it literally. Well, it's time to go get something to drink, something to eat, you know, snacks, whatever. They would stay away from the tube. And what would happen is that the women in particular, which is half of the thing, they would sort of have to now go to the kitchen and do whatever it is. You know what I'm saying? So they would lose interest in the game. It, it didn't have it didn't draw the eyeballs. And so things were falling off. Mm-hmm. So. From one perspective, it's a simple thing of just simply a, another revenue stream that has grown to be very high. That's a very simple, simplistic uh, side of it. Mm-hmm. But of course, this is being a business that is the first and foremost thing. So I'll just state that's the obvious. It's right. about the yeah. revenue stream. Gotcha. And you get more eyeballs now on the halftime than ever before. And it represents the culture. So so they're actually marketing towards the those that can connect to the sports that now all of a sudden, if nothing else, your whole entire family is interested in the game. Nobody is left out. And that's the, and that's the goal. They want us to have something for everybody. That's an all-inclusive. So from that perspective, that's really what it is. And I, I think that the uh, me, me having the opportunity and pleasure of, of actually writing a, uh, being a part of a Super Bowl commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't think of the name, the name, but the year that the New York Giants beat the New uh, England Patriots, yeah. I introduced um, chicken nuggets to the world. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And um, it was we did a rendition along with Cool in the Gang. And speaking about the connection of music and sports, Cool in the Gang had a had a very um, song that plays at most games at the end of the game. Celebrate good times. Come on. Da, 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 da synopsis with it. So Wendy's, um, we came up with the idea of course it just changed. Crispy nuggets, y'all. Come on. So that's, it made that connection. There you go. See? So yeah. that connection in the, in, in the two worlds, it, it matched up because of course then everybody involved um, started to pay attention. See? I I... And I'll keep this brief, but funny enough, one of one of the biggest commercials I've been in, and you just reminded me that I that I did this was in 2013. I tap danced in a Coca-Cola commercial 
Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the America the Beautiful. I'm from the Atlanta, yeah. 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 So they had, again, talking about the relationship between music and, and tradition and culture and politics, right? This commercial was very controversial for a lot of right-leaning people mm-hmm. um, insofar that America the Beautiful was being sung in the many languages that are a part of our country, yeah. right? Um, so, our country that doesn't have an official language, even though we understand it implicitly to be English, right? Um, and now it's so funny because I'll be walking around campus and people will be like, hey, I just had a lecture about, you know, the history of you know American politics and I saw your face in that commercial that they show. So now it's, you know... It's been posited as a, as a real historical event, which is interesting. I think it was the Seahawks-Broncos Super Bowl yeah, in 2013, yeah. right? Um, but yeah, but to close that point, I think that it's really, really, really evidence that, you know, the Super Bowl is a huge political as well as a revenue opportunity. Okay, yeah. um, because so many, like that's that's really more of a State of the Union address that everyone's supposed to tune into than anything else. And if Coca-Cola can virtue signal and associate themselves with this multicultural, worldly perspective at the same time as a Donald Trump is descending from escalators and whatnot, um, that's really the power of that game. Well, I like, I like to borrow from the film industry and history to this issue sure. of music. There's a movie called Rollerball. The music opens with Dakota D minor. Jimmy Kahn. And it also cements the relationship between big time money, big time music, big time sports. You take away one of those, the triumvirate doesn't work. Mm. So the music is now the bomb if you want people to perform. <laughs> and with that, we're going to take a quick break. But listeners, don't go anywhere because this discussion is going to continue in just a couple minutes. Men talk women. Men talk sports. Finally, a talk show where men huddle and break into real conversation, real issues, the real deal. Men for men better living. Real men, real talk. Please, stay safe and stay healthy. As a 25-year Wayne resident, Foggy's Automotives took care of all my car needs. And for real estate, everyone knows it's the Gene Lope team. Listen, we may not agree on who's the best golfer, but we certainly agree that all of our customers and clients are our friends. And we love you. During these trying times, we care. Let's keep our community strong. Stay safe and please stay healthy. You're listening to And welcome back, listeners. As we continue on with this discussion, we're in a segment into on the subject of the Super Bowl halftime show, how we've seen in these performances, the singers and performers get to use their voice as their platform, similar to how athletes play on the field or play on the court is their voice. We see LeBron James a lot of times in his press conference not talking about basketball, but talking about social injustices and talking about issues that matter on a level deeper than sports. Mm. And with the Super Bowl halftime show, we've seen that in the past. Two years ago when we had the Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Eminem, Mary J. Blige, and I forget who all was involved, but when we had that, Dr. Dre paid what we've seen to be at least $7 million is what it has looked like. And The weekend did it before too paid for his part of the Super Bowl halftime show. So when 
These halftime shows take place. The artists are not getting paid. Pepsi, who used to have the rights, now Apple Music has the rights, will pay for their space of the halftime show, which recently has been 40 to $50 million, which shows, once again, the relevance of this event. Well, Dr. Dre bought his own share two years ago, and one of the reasons rumored to have been that, and of course, leagues have shut this down, but we know the NFL is upholding an image with this and trying to avoid controversy. If you all remember, Eminem took a knee at the end of his act. That was a tribute to Colin Kaepernick. That was a tribute to continue the fight against police brutality. Dr. Dre buying that space allowed their performance to be what they wanted it to be and allowed them to use their voice without being censored because, once again, when somebody else owns the rights, they own how the performance can be dictated. And the rumors are that would have been shot down if it weren't for Dr. Dre taking over and saying, I paid for this, we do what we want. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's the stage that we're talking about here. So it's another correlation is, you know, athletes are their own brand, performers are their own brand, and by performing at these stages and by putting in their own money towards it, these musicians and performers have had a chance to promote an image because of where they were able to get to Mm -hmm. with this. The NFL is a business first. Um, I always say that the the E in ESPN stands for entertainment, so it speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. What happens here is, let's talk about the liability of it, which is how this all came about. Um, So you had some wardrobe malfunctions, you had some, some, a lot of little, a lot of little nuances in the Super Bowl halftime productions, and it had a direct reflection to the NFL. So... The correlation due to that music to NFL crossed over in that halftime performance. So anything that was the liability of that halftime performance. So the creativity, as you just articulated, is is now being able to be voice. Eminem, they can and the all of that that you just talked about. All right. So here's here's the deal. So now the liability now goes to Dr. Dre or whoever that is. So they not now they have plausible <laughs> denial. Yeah, exactly. Have plausible denial. Yeah. Well, you know that that's not us. That's what they did. That's exactly what I was And and if anything yeah. if anything quote unquote goes wrong, you got to go see them. Right. Now the the upside of it, uh, uh, Sean, you just spoke about it very articulately. Uh, that that's pretty obvious. So if he put seven me in and he made forty minutes, that was a great that was a great evening. Okay, so from that perspective, it is. But more importantly. What it does on the on the overall is that it shows opportunities for those that would never even be in the room to be able to do that. So, so for so long, uh, just in a natural progression of life, I talk about life here. What you had is that the owners of the NFL, the board, and all of that, you know, they 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 too have been living, they're growing, they're getting a little older, so they could no longer really relate to the culture. But you have these young players that are out there. That demand this. They want. They want the whole. They want the whole Super Bowl to be part of what they're doing. It's an extension of it. So if you look at it from that perspective, um, they they didn't know what to do. See, so I'll, so if you if there's a hiccup there, they would first of all they wouldn't know how to do it. They started putting so many restrictions. Well, you know, let's just play it safe. So basically, I'll say it this way: we went from the marching band at halftime now to these. Super extravagances. All right, so Rihanna, Rihanna or Dr. Dre, if you're saying it, they got these huge, huge things. Uh, Rihanna's thing was people was up, up in the sky and yeah. all of that. It's a huge liability there. See, anything could go wrong. 
So if you if you an NFL owner, you come on, no, 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 I don't want none of that. Can you just get to marching man out there? You know, something at least they're on the, they're on their feet. So I I look at it from that way. We went from people standing on the ground now to being able to be wide enough wow. where they're standing in the sky. Yeah. That's how I see it, mm-hmm. and it's and that it's a symbol of the athletes. They too want to see themselves up there, and they see themselves now. And so they that that's like an extension. So the what the NFL players may or may not be able to articulate or speak. Now the halftime people that are the entertainment music people can actually say some of those words. Mm, mm. See? So it's an extension of, of change of ideas. See? So the two the two the two markets. I see I I've had the opportunity to be there uh, around that. I see some of the players, like you see, you're a dancer. You know, now they're over there and they're dancing, they're yeah. doing their thing. Why? Because they're making that connection. Yeah. They can now feel a little freer, and that and that and that will then hope in hopes for them, from the coaching standpoint, that hopes that that inspires them to get out there for the second half yeah. and do a lot better. So that's that's the take of it. That's how I see. That and that's so true. I think um, one of one of the first time actually I. I I choreographed in a professional setting. I was 12 years old, and I was the mini-me of Jacoby Jones, who had a breakout season and had a, a great performance in the Super Bowl, and it put him on Dancing with the Fun Stars. Fun fact, I was at that Super Bowl. There you go. Saw the kick return touchdown, and yeah, no kidding, breakout type of year for Jacoby Jones Absolutely. right there. So just a fun fact on, on that segment there. Fun fact Small square. world, we're circling we a lot of things exactly. together here. But that's that's the point. This is this is a guy who's dancing, who sees himself in other forms of media, right, and in other performers through different mediums, um, and it puts him in a place where he's a finalist on uh, Dancing with the Stars, and it gives the opportunity for somebody like me, a young kid who could really tap dance, to actually go on and do that uh, for a national audience, right? And uh, it was really cool that he really mandated, right? In the same way that, obviously on a much smaller scale, that Dr. Dre said, I want my performance to look this way. He was like, no, I want a young kid who looks like me to tap dance and then we hit my touchdown dance at the end. Phenomenal. This leads me to the idea that perhaps we we wouldn't look at football this way, but if we understand performance, music, acting, all of these things as a medium, I then question, right, like, what, what can we say about football as a medium? And I always have this conversation with a friend of mine, uh, Jack Elias, another wonderful musician um, doing his thing in L.A. Uh, but we always talk about the similarities and differences between football and basketball, right? And one of the things that I find so interesting is the fact that these football players, like you said, they are taught or at least, you know, are understood to be voiceless in a way that live performers aren't, right? But LeBron James is somebody who's very vocal. How does having the football helmet and the jersey and and that, you know, kind of flattening them as an entire group, how does that mitigate their ability to have a voice? And as somebody who's new to professional sports, um, as it pertains to like, you know, the history of the NFL, the history of integration, um, something that you two are much more awake to. I'm curious how you feel. Is it is it simple enough to say that because these men have these helmets on and that they're told to run into each other, that, that, that there's a relationship between that and why it's much harder for them to get guaranteed deals? Why we see somebody like Lamar Jackson struggling to get the same deal as a <laughs> Daniel Jones, who he's yeah. eight times better than, right? Um, I'm curious how, how you feel about um, sports 
as not to call it an artistic medium, but a medium, um, and how the way that these these players are presented might shift and change their ability to actually have a voice. Well, well you hit on something. You know, Sean is writing a book with one of my students from Georgia Tech. Okay, that's uh, cool. Thank you. With, yeah. uh, with uh, Mr. Best. Travis Best. Travis former Best. Former Indiana Pacer. NBA. Okay, sweet. Yep. Yeah. You know, and he's a, in a stable of athletes there that I had a chance to work with. Nomar, um, Jay Payton, um, Dorsey Levins. And there is a difference. There is a dichotomy between the two sports. Football was always a much more controlled aggression sort of thing. Whereas basketball came up with an elegance, a refined elegance that was based on a philosophical expression of man, the, the mind-body-spirit paradigm mm. at, uh, at Springfield College. Plus, you know, the roots of basketball actually are from Canada, not necessarily America, although the, the game was pioneered here. Because of that, and because, again, of the elegance versus confrontation or violence, the basketball players have always been a much more different erudite group. And because basketball was also able to, to be socialized internationally a lot quicker than football, uh, it became a much more universal game. And thus it allowed for a different, just like track, if you really want to look at the foundations of sports and music of sports and all of that, the geopolitics of the game who's playing the game, who's not, the prestige. People were shocked when the dream team had to trounce the Chinese. How dare the Chinese want to take the American dominance? Well, guess what? We're not ready to give it to you yet. And by the way, we're not going to let any college boys play. We're going to bring our best to show y'all. Yao Ming is one guy, but to win in this game, you need a team. So I do think that the design of the sport lends itself to to some some articulation of what's wrong. The same thing with baseball. If you look at where the paradigm of inclusion of baseball and tolerance of the tolerance in American sports came from, it started with what? Baseball, Jackie Robinson, the gentleman's game. Then it went to basketball, where you had people like uh, Lou Alcindor change his name, where you had Adolf Rupp and his racist system defeated by a team from, you know, somewhere, but they believed in team. Right. So again, the nature of the sports have defined as to why football is the last sport to actually reach for transparency. This mm-hmm. issue with the coaching, this issue, uh, you know, just the whole wheel that goes on there. So yes, how the sport is designed does lend itself as to what kind of sports, what kind of musicology is assigned to it. I, I was telling Sean, you know, my freshman year, I wrote Crew here. When I graduated in 81, you know, one of the top films was Chariots of Fire. Van Gelis, you know, your music reminds me somewhat of that in terms of, of, of the movement and the swings. But again, the reinforcement of the self, pushing the self for a higher purpose. Chariots of Fire was a defeat of, 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 of anti-Semitism. It was also a knock against ag- agnosticism. You know, those guys, they, they want to take the helmets off so people can see Can them. see them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just simply marketing, you know. Yeah. And yeah. they can take the, take the helmet off, people would know them more. And, they, and that's what they all strive for. Right. What I say to you, too, is uh, I want to say one thing about the business of it before we get off of this. Uh, is speaking back to the, to the Super Bowl again and uh, Dr. Dre. Here's another point that I want the audience to understand is that 
that for that half hour, because they've now moved it up to, to a half hour, that half hour and the half time money, um, all of the sponsorships of that half hour, Dr. Dre, that's how that's where that revenue stream came from, seventy to seven million to forty million. Right. So in essence, the I call it spreading the money around. See, that that money um, has has grossed a big it's a big revenue stream, but it has also created opportunities. See, so from a pure business standpoint, it's a it's it's I every time I see it myself and I, I applaud Dr. J or any of them where you simply call over to, I don't know, what, what network played the Super Bowl? Was it Fox this year? Fox this year. Fox, okay. So you simply, I, I always, we, we laugh about it, quote, unquote, in the locker room. It's like, you know, you call over and you say, listen, how much does a half hour cost for the Super Bowl? You know, and you simply buy the time. So now I, now I own a half hour of the Super Bowl. Right. Mm-hmm. See, and that's the, and that's that's in itself is what I'm talking about. So that empowers everybody. That empowers the music. That empowers the sports. Everybody's thinking the same way. Yeah, we can we can do this. We, we can, can do, own it. We can yeah, own it. Yeah. Yes, we can own it. And when you and and what I what I what I want to say to you, you're very artistic. Um, think about it this way. Take a football game, take a highlight, and make that creative. Choreograph it. Dance, put your dance with it. Turn the clips of what's happening on the sports and set that to music and use the choreography. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, 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 of course, the celebratory dances that they do in the... In the you can choreograph those. Mm-hmm. See? So that's where that's where the intertwining of the music. See? So when they when they when they score a touchdown and they run to the end zone and they're doing their dance. Well, what is that? That's music. Mm-hmm. They're choreographing. They're bringing music into the game. Mm-hmm. The players have been doing it the entire time. Some of the some of the they laugh about it. Like, I think some even some of the cadences now yeah. that the um, yeah, quarterbacks are using. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's got a musicality to it. It's got a rhythm to it. Mm. See, so everybody that the, the whole thing is now involved into the culture. That's that's what. Well, and, and going off of scoring touchdowns, what's the first thing that happens once that player hits the end zone? Music's playing throughout the stadium. So it's like these are kind of the avenues. Like I said earlier, when you think about it first, it may be surface level. Then you realize all the parallels that we're seeing, and it's. Every big play, you've got some music behind it. Every touchdown, as they're dancing, you've got some music behind it. There, there's in almost every avenue when you go to an NBA arena, they're playing music as they're dribbling the ball up the court right. half the time. You know, and it's 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 always intertwined. And then one thing I also wanted to say, we talked about how performers have actually paid for halftime show space, and they're not getting paid to perform. But I will say there is still a very big benefit. For these performers when they're there. When The weekend did Super Bowl 55, his music sales the rest of the year rose by 385% mm-hmm. after his halftime show performance. His streams on Apple Music and Spotify rose by around 41% immediately after. And his song Blinding Lights surpassed 2 billion streams on Spotify and was the second most streamed song in the entire world for that year. Yeah. So while he's not getting paid to be there, that platform that's provided by a sport can really enhance somebody's career. And Rihanna, I read today actually, 
hadn't done live performances, a big live performance in seven years. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, she does the Super Bowl, absolutely kills it, and she's one of the most streamed performers right now. So there is a very big benefit yeah. when we're talking about performing. In that sense, they're they're earning the promotion mm-hmm. that Pepsi or Apple Music pay forty to fifty million dollars for. Yes, right. You're just paying for it with a performance. Yeah. You know. Um, but it's funny, like the story of the weekend. I remember reading that there was a lot of controversy because he had the biggest album that year, Blinding Lights, was probably the biggest pop song. Like mm-hmm. you said, it was the second most streamed song. Um, and he didn't receive a single Grammy nomination because the Grammys wanted him to perform and were upset that he took the Super Bowl gig because they didn't want any uh, redundancy um, on these like you know nationally or internationally watched yeah. um, large performances. And that cost him, maybe not some minute dollar sign, yeah. but something in legacy with what was his most commercial. Well, Fred Smith always yeah. rears its head when you look at these situations, which right. again, brings us back to the issue of sports and it being a catharsis, a change agent. Mm. This thing with the Grammys is, is illuminates that. I mean, it, what? You, you are, you're going you're gonna to punish somebody? Well, you know, that goes two ways. Now that artists can take their stuff and have their fight songs uh, copyrighted, people can do what they want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is your sport, may I ask? What sport do you like the best? To watch or to play? Both. Actually, no, it's, it's probably, the answer might be the same. I, I grew up playing basketball. Um, you, you didn't hear him say Kobe Bryant. Yeah, I was listening, I, I was listening. Kobe's huge for me, but, <laughs> I, you know, I think um, as a tap dancer, a lot of a lot of the tap dancers I looked up to um, How'd you get into tap? Well. I mean, I'm from Georgia, Man. and I remember, um, I, what was it? It wasn't Harlem Nights, this was a... Film White Nights. White Nights. And, and Mikhail Berisha. I, I actually had been in Russia yeah. years ago, <laughs> and he had been very much a, a, a savant between Western entertainment mm-hmm. and Western geopolitics with tap. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, when you think about tap, you, you go back to Scatman Carruthers, you go back to all those artists with, with uh, Miss Temple and all those. That was always mm-hmm. a genre of of the black entertainers. Absolutely. And so, you know, tap is very difficult, but everybody wants to do it because you gotta have some soul to do do it. But how did you you seize upon tap? So, funny enough, my, uh, the the long story made short is my mom, I had tons of energy as a kid. My mom put me in a gymnastics school because I really wanted to flip and do Mm -hmm. all these things. And she had tried me in team sports at a young age and, just with how competitive I was. Mm-hmm. It's always been a part of my nature. That didn't quite work out at first. I would get very upset with teammates <laughs> for not wanting to win as much. Um, and there's something to be said about learning about losing, and that's something that's come with some age. But at least at that time, I needed a physical outlet and something that I could challenge and be in competition with only myself for. So it was gymnastics and down the street from this gymnastics school, Los Angeles School of Gymnastics, is a Debbie Allen Dance Academy. My father's from Senegal, and my mom was like, you know, growing up here, you're not getting exposed so much to your culture, um, or at least your father's culture and, and that history and tradition. And so they have West African dance class. Well, to enroll in dance class, or at least African dance class, you have to enroll in the conservatory and do the curriculum and, and learn all styles. Mm-hmm. One of those styles is tap dance. And it felt so much like a puzzle to me. I think um, tap dance is my introduction to music. 
my introduction to that jazz music. I mean, I, I was blessed with wonderful teachers, uh, Chloe Arnold, Jared Grimes, Sarah Rice. And one of the first songs, or one of the, the actually the very first transcription I ever did in my life was the melody of uh, Charlie Parker's "Scrapper from the Apple." Right. So I had to do that with my feet. Then one thing leads to an accident. By the time I'm, you know, 12, 13 years old, there are dance magazines writing about me as like the best tap dancer in the nation. Right. You know, for my age which is, you know, complicated in its own way, but it was something that I excelled at and um, brought me to being a presidential scholar in the arts. Uh, my senior year of high school, there's a picture of me frowning next to Donald Trump because of it, funny enough, because <laughs> he was in office at the time. Um, but that's that's how I get into tap dancing. And then a lot of these dancers I look up to very much so play a lot of basketball and they're real good. Uh, funny enough, also, Debbie Allen's husband is Norm Nixon, who played mm -hmm. for the Lakers, so yeah. Norm's no son, Thump, whenever he could get me to come and hang out with him, even though he was much older, we're playing basketball, I'm learning, and uh, and yeah, um, I, I adore basketball, but I also adore soccer, and I've gotten more into watching football, because I, I played some uh, in middle school, um, and then have had friends that have gone on to play and do some pretty amazing things. Um, like I was telling you, I was in a basketball camp, uh, yeah. you know, seventh and eighth grade at UCLA, and one of the fellow campers is Bryce Young, oh, yeah. first overall in the draft this year, and Kayvon Thibodeau was another yeah. kid that was, yeah. I was grew up playing. Like the, all these kids are from the area, um, right there um, in, in in Crenshaw, right in Los Angeles area. That's, so, that's what's up. No, that's not that's LA for us. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's there. There's amazing, amazing athletes. Um, and to get into that story about Kobe. So I've been performing for a long time now as a kid, and there's a I start singing it at some point along the way, um, and the husband of an amazing tap dancer, his name is Max, but Melinda Sullivan's a tap dancer. Um, he works with uh, this composer named Chris Bowers. Uh, Chris Bowers did the score for Green Book, uh, score for a lot of amazing movies. He's he's one of the most prolific young black composers, uh, film composers of this day. He's working on a project with Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant doing his animations and his yeah. storytelling and whatnot, right? And so um, his Muse Cage production, I believe it's called. And I get a, I get a text from Max saying, "Hey, sing this, sing this thing for me, right?" Um, it's a voice memo of a man with a deep voice singing like a nursery rhyme kind of thing. That went, "This is what I do. I do this for you." Something like that, right? The voice sounded familiar, but I send it back. He's like, "Okay, so this is for uh, one of Kobe's shorts." And that was Kobe singing it, telling me I want to hear whatever this kid sounds like. And he liked your voice. So you got it, right? So for the next couple months, there was like a, like a series of these shorts. And I'm going back and forth, like, getting voice recordings of my idol singing yeah. these like nursery rhymes that he wrote, saying that he liked my voice, right? And so it was a wonderful opportunity. Sadly, didn't get to meet him. Mm -hmm. um, I had a presentation in the English class that my teacher said, if you miss class, you're gonna lose all 20% of your grade. And at the time I was trying to come to Yale. So it's like, I can't I can't go and, and, and meet this dude. But you know, if I do have one thing, it's the fact that, that at least this dude liked yeah, uh, that's, what I was able to do and yeah, like my voice, which is such a, such a special honor. Like it's something I'll be able to hold on to for the rest of my life. And that's life. what I was gonna say. I said, that's something that forever will be a long-lasting memory. And, and we're going to head to a quick commercial break, but when we're back, we'll be continuing on with the subject of the athlete and the performer. Oh. 
I'm composer Dunn Pearson, and I want you to visit WBRFRadio.com to make a donation. Your gift, no matter the amount, will help veterans reset fellowship. So join me by becoming a monthly subscriber at WBRFRadio.com. God bless America. Simply the best. Rarity. Top 1%. Circle of Excellence. For all your real estate needs, the Gene Lowe team. Rarity. Simply the best. Foggy's Automotive. From a simple oil change to every auto repair to keep your engine running smooth. For Wayne's best car care. Foggy's Automotive, number one. Foggy's Automotive, 1536 Rats Road, Wayne. You're listening to Dog's Day. And as we come to the conclusion of our discussion here today, the last subject I wanted to talk about is drawing parallels between the athlete performance-wise and a singer performance-wise, a dancer performance-wise. And for me, like when I think about this, another subject that when you're in it is a lot deeper than people realize. When you're writing a song and when you're going out to perform, there's a whole process that got you to that point. And, you know, I can talk about with football, but I'll talk more about my present day self with track. When I'm going out to race, you may just think, oh, you're going to run. There's a whole lot more that goes into that process. And it's from your positioning out of the blocks to every body movement you have on every single stride throughout that race, how your breathing is, what are your arms doing? What are your legs doing? What muscles are tense? What are relaxed? How's your brain firing? And what I think is really cool to look at is the process that goes into an athletic performance starts years before a race or years before the game. And it's the same thing when you're going out on stage to perform. That's the small bit of the process that you had to go through. And one parallel with it is I've always thought you can look at sports as a form of art as well. And when you see somebody running, like Usain's Bolt, his record-breaking time, in the track world, you'd watch that and say that was beautiful. Not, oh, that looked really good. Like, that's artwork right there. Because he has perfected things that take years to do and things he's pushing his body beyond the limits of what was once thought possible. And so I want to go through the process. Owen, we'll start with you. And Don, you've done this for a very long time as well. We were talking at dinner last night. I asked you, how do you start the process of writing a song? And you said it starts with the keyboard. Mm -hmm. And to me, that got me thinking... For track for me, it doesn't start on the track. It starts by understanding what I'm going to have to do. And with my coach back at home, with my coaches here at Yale, the best work I've had sometimes isn't a live rep, but it's explaining to me why you have to do something this way, why your foot needs to be placed here instead of there, Mm. down to inches and centimeters of placement when you're striking the ground to get your force to accelerate forward faster. And that got me thinking, there's a process to music as well. And it's, again, starts at a point that people will never actually see. And so touch on that, you're going to write a song. Where's that beginning? Yeah, I mean, I think think like you said, um, I can't start writing a song without first laying the groundwork for whatever melody I'm going to be singing, whatever message I want to translate to an audience, be they a listener or somebody who's going to be 
watching you perform this song live, that's going to be fully dictated by the chord progression and, and the stage I set for that to even happen mm -hmm. in the first place, right? And so that's how it starts for me. Um, but it's, it's so interesting because everybody's, in the same way that any athlete is different and we're all individuals, artists are, are in the same way too. And I arrived at music backwards, you know, I started performing and in dance, you know, and so the philosophy through which I am like creating music is very much so dictated by my imagination um, as it pertains to how I'm going to showcase this to people and how they're going to experience it, right? And so um, I would not in any way want it to be misconstrued that I'm saying like, oh, this is how songwriting goes. This is how it goes for me. And these are the things that I think about. And when I go from chord progression to singing the melody to then putting some words to it, to then decorating it with harmony, auxiliary instruments, uh, and then mix and master, and then, okay, well, what does this sound like when I'm doing it with a full live band? Am I doing a hybrid of, you know, digital production that I do in the computer and, you know, bringing talented musicians in? All of these things happen at different stages, but um, that point of arrival that you're talking about, right, like preparation, if we consider the songwriting process, mm -hmm. preparation and the performance of the race, um, when I do step on stage, right, to anybody watching, that's just those five, 30 hour of time that I'm performing. But for me, that's all like the, the amalgam of all the time yeah. I've spent as an artist from five years old arriving at that moment. And sure, it's an iota, but at the same time, that performance is also going to be posited and brought in with me the next time I'm creating it. So performance for me and songwriting, it's always a, a present that's informed by that past mm -hmm. and future and ever-changing. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'm going to go from the aspect of sports mm -hmm. and, and music. Um, so I'm going to go from the scoring part of it, mm -hmm. the orchestral piece. So the first thing that come to my mind is um, most athletes, all of the sports have one thing in common, and there's some running in it. Baseball, you hit a ball, you got to run the first base. Uh, football, of course, you catch a pass, you got to run to this, go to touchdown. So all of the sports, basketball, you get a ball, you got to run the, got to run the full court. Mm -hmm. All right. So from that perspective, first of all, is how long does it take to? I'll go. I'm going to use the basketball analogy since since got Mr. Kobe Bryant over here. Yeah. All right. So he gets the ball from one goal uh, on a rebound, and he and he runs to the other court. The ball is dribbling. He has a coordination. There's a rhythm there. Each step that he takes with the bounce of the ball, that's a rhythm. So if I'm scoring that particular uh, transaction or that, that event that he's running from thing, of course, I'm going to pay attention to that sound. What's that sound, that rhythm of the sound? So I would, it's, it's funny thing, the human body, um, you, run in a, you run in a rhythm. So there's a rhythm there. And um, I was taught, um, I have a book of calculations for scoring. So if the scene is that he catches the ball on a rebound and he goes all the way to the dunk, if that say if that's twelve, if say that's twelve seconds, I'll just take a I'll just take a number. But if that's twelve seconds, then that means within that twelve seconds, I'm going from the beginning, which is to to catch the ball, which means that's the beginning. The end comes with the slam dunk. So in a in a simple way. Of course, when he makes a slam dunk, that's where the crescendo is. But the crescendo is starting from the foul line, 
because that's that last belt of energy. So you build up the climax, which everybody in the in the uh, in the arena is waiting on him to slam dunk the ball. So the music would then grow in that moment. So it would go from and he's now stumped the ball. So that's a musicality. In the meantime, it's the him running. Right. It's a rhythm. So it's like um it's like a musicality puzzle. Mm-hmm. You got you have certain things that are that are etched into that. I said it's twelve seconds. You have the rhythm. I now would then see how far he is from the free throw line. That crescendo. Those things are that's part of this. That's part of the songwriting process. Right. And what happens is this: when it's a musical piece that is done that way, many of the athletes you can dictate that in your mind. So I'm talking about. I'm going to make a very switch. Quick switch. The quarterback, he gets the ball, he gets the height. What's the time that it takes for him to throw that pass? And that is acceptable. Um, and that's what the, I guess the football players, you know, they're, they're quarterback in specific, they got to know when you're going to release that ball. So every lineman's got to hold, you know, you got to block them for two seconds, you know, whatever the time is. But, but that at that particular action is him hiking the ball and having to do that in that time. In your mind, in the human mind, you can almost put that to music. So many times, what I do this theory of between music and mathematics, um, I do a big course with that, music and mathematics. We time out what that is. You put a musicality to it. It may be his favorite song. It may be just a part of a, of a tune that he knows. You can have that in your mind and you can just hum it to yourself in a, in a psychological way and say, before I get to that note, you know where it is. I got to get rid of this ball. And you can have everybody in the line tune. See, this is some of the new nuances that are going on. It could just, like I said, it could be, as I'll just use, uh, just to make it really simple. Da-da-da, da-da-da, everybody knows what that is. Okay, I see that's being, so let's just say that that, that is what it is. So he hikes it, he's telling you the temple of da-da-da, da-da-da, five, four, hike, huh, ESPN, da-da-da, da-da-da. Everybody has that in their mind. So between that time, you know, if you're blocking for him, you got to get your man, keep him away from that, da-da-da, da-da-da, you know what I'm saying? And he got to get the pass. The guy on this guy that's catching the pass got to know that that means turn around. That may be your signal by which now the, the, the guy turns around to not catch the ball. So you can make it all, it's, it's all running the same way. Right. These are some of the techniques that have been derived into the analytics that they have now presented in football and all of the sports. Right. Analytics and the sports and the music. It comes from the same thing. When, I mean, timing's everything Time is in it. every sport. Everything in and, and in music, same thing. If That's correct. You don't hit that note at the right time. I'm sure it's not going to sound the same as when you're on beat and on melody, right? I don't know. Pitch, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's fabulous. But you have to be meticulous about it. Absolutely. And you have to have a holistic understanding of what you're doing. I mean, there's so many allegories between the artist who's talented yeah. but isn't necessarily in control of what they're doing and that athlete with raw talent, but you know, is out of control, this or that. You know, it's it's all the same. It's all about um, 
understanding your instrument. Mm-hmm. Of course. It's, it mirrors. We, we all mirror. We all mirror. Right. Some people, you can move outside the line. And, you know, I talk about that all the time. Um, this, uh, eurythmics is, is, is a course that I took in, in college, and that's mm-hmm. the movement of the body. And, uh, and the athletes were always assigned to come to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and they would... They, we would have correspondence and we would talk about it from a pure rhythmic standpoint. And I would say, yeah, but see, you know, and I would add the musicality to it. And they would say, oh, yeah, okay, okay. So it's identifiable. Mm-hmm. It's just reaching reaching who you're dealing with. In the, yeah. and so sports, music, it's all part of the same idiom all, all the ways because, of course, I can't say it enough. Mm-hmm. It's all entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Malcolm, you got any, uh, any final thoughts on this? I think the gentlemen have covered it quite Comprehensively, I will say this: music is the fire of the man, of the imagination of man. Without the music, there would not be motivation. Mm. So, yes, the athletes and the athletics are there, but the music has to come first from the sweat of the brow of the athlete, in order to motivate he, she, or whomever to accomplish their goal, their, you know, their their high ground. So. I do think, however, this offers some unique opportunities for athletes of color because so many of them are immersed in music from their from their interests. Mm. And I hope you'll keep pushing as a young composer as well. Most certainly will. Most certainly will. And with that, Malcolm, Don, Alman, we have covered music and sports. I think there's a lot more that we could probably do a couple more episodes on this. So in the future, I think we'll have to, we'll have to run it back and (laughs) Alman will have your music put in the description of this episode. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Yeah. Get some background music so they they can hear (laughs) You better listen in because I promise you're not going to be disappointed. So guys, thanks for coming on and great discussion today. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. Thank you. And listeners, we'll see you back here next week on another episode of the Sean Snake Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Sean's Take podcast and make sure to join Sean's Take on social media for more unique and exclusive content by following at Sean's Take on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok.